Well, good evening, church. It is great to gather here together on this very special day, truly a special evening. This entire week, right? Entire week is special. Entire week is holy. And if you've been possibly reading along through the gospel accounts and through all the events that took place sequentially through this week, we've come to a place that um, could often be called a dark day, a, a Black Friday. And for very good reasons, we call it Good Friday. And I want us to think about these things tonight as we open up to Isaiah chapter 53. Let me go ahead and pray before we begin. Father, we thank you. Our hearts overflow with gratitude tonight because we come again and again under the realization of uh, what Christ had done for us. Um, and, and not just while here on earth, but even now continue in his ministry on our behalf. Father, we, would you bless this time of the word of Christ going forward and being proclaimed to our hearts that we would dwell and that we would ponder, that we would understand again and again, that we would acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord, that we would make much of his work, much of his person tonight, being reminded that he alone is acceptable in your sight. As we consider this text, I pray, just gather our, our thoughts and that you would arrest our attention and, and focus it on, on the cross. And may we come and may we fall down and may we not only behold but worship him for what he is to us, for who he is to us, for what he has done. Bless this time in your word, we pray. In his holy name, amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. With these contradictory phrases, Charles Dickens introduce his epic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. These, these contrasting views, these paradoxical views, were meant to describe two extremes of life in the 18th century, just before the French Revolution. As the story unfolds in his novel, there's conflict between darkness and light. There are scenes of hope and at the same time of great despair. Scenes of wealth and great poverty. 
Well, this introduction could very well be a description of another event in history where darkness clashed with light. Hope and despair collided and the world was never the same. If there was ever a paradoxical moment in our history, it was at noon on that first Good Friday, right outside the city of Jerusalem. At the moment, in that day when the noon sun should have been the brightest, it became like the middle of the night. An innocent man was found guilty of crimes he did not commit and was executed for it. And as he cries out to God, asking why he's being abandoned, a temple veil tears in two and opens up direct access to God. One man's agony and pain brings the world great hope and comfort. To the physical eye, the scene looked like utter defeat, but in fact, it was the display of God's greatest victory. The cross of Jesus Christ is, is the great paradox in scripture because it is so difficult to grasp. It is often described as a stumbling block to the faith of some and foolishness to others. Yet for others who, who behold the cross with eyes of faith, our encounter with the crucified Jesus is the turning point and is indeed the foundation for our faith. Tonight, I want us to reflect on the events that led up to the cross by looking at, as I already mentioned, Isaiah chapter 53. It is a well-known song of the servant, which looks forward some 700 years ahead to the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sufferings of life and the sufferings of death. And I want us to consider for the moment that we have here tonight, just three verses out of this song, verses seven through nine, verses that are oftentimes neglected in, the, in this song, probably because of the richness that is found around in, in other verses. I want us to read beginning with verse 13 of chapter 52, and we'll read through chapter 53 to set the context for us tonight. Isaiah writes in 52 verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor 
appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us was turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. What a text. I invite you to turn your attention to verse seven. And as we look at verses six through seven, I want us to to just consider this one thought that the Christ's trial, execution, and, and burial, they were paradoxical because his mission was paradoxical. His mission to live for and to die in place of wretched sinners like you and I. The reason why Good Friday seemed a bit off at first is because his mission was unlike anything else anyone ever endeavored to do. And I'll break this verse down in each, or this passage in each verse, and I want us to consider three things here. First of all, the servant's trial, then the servant's execution, and then the servant's burial. Trial, execution, burial. In his book, The Murder of Jesus, John MacArthur describes the kind of trial Jesus underwent at the hands of his enemy against the, the backdrop of all the legal priorities which would normally apply to a case like his. 
in, in chapter titled The Kangaroo Court of the High Priest, tells you a little bit about what's going to happen here. He writes this. It's a lengthy quote here. He writes, rabbinical tradition had another had added another restriction on death penalty cases. A full day of fasting had to be observed by the council between the passing of sentence and the execution of the criminal. That not only prevented hasty trials and executions, but it also kept capital cases off the docket during the feast. After the obligatory day of fasting, council members were polled again to see if they had changed their opinions. Guilty verdicts could thus be overturned, but a non-guilty verdict could not be rescinded. All those principles were established to ensure that trials were both fair and merciful. Legal scholars who have studied the justice system of the Sanhedrin cite numerous other principles that govern the hearing of capital cases. To ensure fairness against the accused by council members, the entire council was disqualified from trying the case. Testimonies of all witnesses had to be precise as to the date, time, location of the event one was testifying about. Women, children, slaves, and and mentally incompetent were not permitted to testify, persons of questionable character were also disqualified from being witnesses. The accused was not to be presumed, was to be presumed innocent until an official guilty verdict was reached. Criminal trials were not to be convened at night, and if a trial was already underway when nighttime fell, court was to be recessed until the following day. Nearly all those principles were openly flouted in the trial of Christ. His trial was unjust and illegal by virtue of every principle of jurisprudence that was known at that time. Caiaphas and the Sahedrin turned their own counsel into kangaroo court with the predetermined purpose to kill Christ. The trial they imposed on him was one extended act of deliberate inhumanity, the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. 700 years before this miscarriage of justice, Isaiah writes in verse 7 of chapter 53, and he says, he, the suffering servant, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, was oppressed and he was afflicted. To be oppressed, he was he was mistreated in all kinds of ways, in many ways. The, the same word is used in Exodus 3, where God communicates to Moses to go to Egypt because, quote, I have heard the oppression of my people by these oppressors, by these taskmasters in verse 7. And I am aware of their suffering. Therefore, I am going to go and rescue them by oppression Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. To be afflicted is to be humbled, to be submitted. At times, this, this verb here, to be afflicted, is used in the reflexive voice, which gives the idea here that it should be translated that while he was oppressed, Jesus Christ was submissive and humble. So it is during this oppression, during this miscarriage of justice that Jesus Christ willingly submits to this kind of mockery. He does not fight back. 
He gives himself up willingly. And the question is why? Why? Why do you do what you do? And even though things on that Friday seem to be getting out of control, Jesus Christ is in total command of this situation. Sometimes I think we feel more sorry for Christ and and wish if we had the power that Christ had, we would step out and act and react. But Jesus is quiet. He doesn't open his mouth. Christ, the servant, does not justify himself in any way. We would resort, right, to to some obvious tactics to get out of this mess if, if we were in that position. Maybe some subtle deceits, maybe even a little bit of lie. If someone is confronting us and and someone uh, is telling us, hey, this is the result, this is the punishment, death, we may try to get out of that situation even if we had to, quote unquote, sin. But Jesus Christ is unlike any man. Jesus Christ is different. Now, if you are all familiar with the with the gospel accounts, and many of you are, you're probably aware that Jesus Christ is not silent at all times. He speaks. He spoke during his trial. He spoke spoke on few occasions, right? But, But he offered no resistance and made no defense. He doesn't confess sin. He doesn't protest his innocence. Scott Grant writes, Not only did he fail to offer any defense, he spoke in a way that was sure to convict him. The gospel writers show that from a heavenly perspective, the only thing Jesus was guilty of was being the Messiah. He was convicted because he was not the kind of Messiah that Israel wanted. The only way to get off the hook at this point was to claim that he wasn't the Messiah or to amend what he had offered Israel as the Messiah. He would not be anything other than what he was and he would be true to his vocation and he would suffer for it. And instead of fighting back and defending himself, he he humbly proceeds to this trial, being fully aware what's in front of him. And that's what makes the following illustration so much more baffling. Like a lamb, Isaiah writes, that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent, before its shears. Isaiah here employs the same illustration he just employed in in verse 6 and also something that Paul would later on in the New Testament in Romans chapter 3 would attribute to to all of humanity. Here in verse 6, he attributes it to the sons of Israel, but we know it's all of us. Verse 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way like sheep have gone astray. In our iniquity from birth, in a life of transgression, we choose not to submit, not to follow the shepherd. What started in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, in our efforts to prove that, that we too like to be gods, we resisted the way of the Lord and continue to seek our own way, each of us has turned to his own way. But this lamb is different. He's unlike us. He submits. He's willing. He's without resistance. Just think of this. Between us and Jesus Christ, 
Only one had the reason to resist. Only one. Between us and Jesus Christ, only one had legitimate reason to resist the kind of trial he underwent. And it wouldn't be us. No, we chose our own way. We rebelled against the Lord. Jesus Christ is perfect. He could have chosen a different way. He could have chosen to defend himself. Yet because of our rebellion, because of our refusal to follow Christ, chooses to be silent. And consider this, that the the sheep when led to slaughter are silent, the text says. They're silent. In fact, sheep go as uncomprehending to the slaughter as they are to shearing. They don't know what's going on. The sheep don't know what's about to come down. They go down to be sheared. They go down to be slaughtered in the same way, silent in ignorance. One commentator says, this is precisely the point at which animal can only picture the substitute we require and cannot actually be that substitute. They have no consciousness of what is afoot, nor of any deliberate personal self-submissive consent to it. Ultimately, only one person can substitute for people. The lamb is the son of God. He's God incarnate who knows full well what's at stake. In fact, he's about to be nailed to it. He knows it. In John 18, as the events begin to unravel, John writes, so Jesus, knowing all the things that are about to come upon him, he is not proceeding in ignorance. He knows. He knows better than us. Remember Christ in in the garden, my father, Matthew 26, 39, my father, if this is possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows what's ahead. He can already feel that cup, the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of his chosen ones. And he prayed, Father, if there's another way, is there another way that salvation can be accomplished? This was a real struggle. He's experiencing real anxiety here, unlike anything we've ever faced. And having been assured by God that there is no other way, but through the cross, he he welcomes everything that's about to go down. Everything. In John 18, or John 10, verse 18, he says, let's get one thing straight. No one has taken it, my life, away from me. No one's forcing me to do this. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I do what I want to do because of my love for the Father and my love for the redeemed. Church, this is newsworthy. This is perplexing. This should disturb us and move us to some kind of respond. Why is Christ silent? He wasn't going to justify himself, right? Everybody knew that he was innocent if we read the gospel accounts. You know, as I, as I reread them this week and and see just Jesus standing there silent. One thought just kept crossing my mind. If he's dying for himself, 
then he has every right and reason to defend himself. Right? If he's dying for himself, he can speak up because he's innocent. There's no baggage. There's no crime. But if he wasn't dying for himself, what if the harsh treatment was actually warranted? And you know what it was? The scripture says it was Christ died for another. He died in our place. He died instead of us. Each of us faced this reality of dealing with the consequences of our own sin. And each had to face a trial. And when the charges would be read and accusations would be pronounced, we would not be able to answer. You know what? Those who reject the offer of Christ will be standing there before the Lord to give an account. They will not speak. They will not argue. They will not present their case. Why? Because there will be no case. The evidence is just too great. You will be silent. And I I just can't help but think what was going through the mind of Christ at this time is, you know what? Their sin deserves no justification and no defense. His silence, church, proves our guilt. Because you and I, like like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah says in verse 6, Jesus, a willing and obedient lamb, takes on the punishment, takes on our guilt, takes on our sorrows, and ultimately our death. How can we not those of us who have experienced the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, marvel at Jesus tonight. How can we not bow down and worship before the lamb who owned our sin? When oppressed, the servant willingly submits to a mock of a trial, but he goes further than that. Notice how the the prophet describes his death in verse 8 by oppression and judgment. He was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Consider second, the servant's execution. As the servant submits, he is unjustly punished and executed. Oppression and judgment here. Notice this phrase in verse 8, by oppression and judgment. And it could be interpreted um, few ways. It could be, some of your translation might say, without legal process, or by reason of an oppressive sentence, or by perverted judgment, or judicial violence. In other words, what he had to go through, the, the mock of a trial that he underwent was unjust. It was laughable. And all of these variations, they, they speak about this joke, this trial that they put on and that Jesus had to endure before his death. And notice this, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Literally hurried away. Like, guys, we don't have enough time. We don't have a lot of time. We need to do this quickly. Okay? Let's just figure this out. Let's just involve all the people we need to involve in order to condemn this guy and put him on a cross. Make sure he dies. Hurried away to death. Quickly dealt with. Why at night? Right? Question is, why so quickly? If he's guilty of all that you say he is, shouldn't more time be given to to closely examine all the evidence, to involve all the parties, to discuss, to take a break, 
Make sure that no one's hot about this issue. Make sure it's not personal vengeance. And let's reconvene in two days and figure this out. No, no. You know, the answer is, the answer is very simple. Why? John chapter 8. Go there with me. John, Gospel of John chapter 8. And look at verse 34. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendant, yet you seek to kill me because my words have no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you hear or heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. You see, because Jesus told them the truth about the reality of their hearts, the reaction is murder. Murder. Doesn't it hurt sometimes when your spouse or, I don't know, your friend, a very close friend, friend who cares for you, tells you something like, you know, brother or, or sister, like, you messed up right here. This is sinful. What you're doing here is sinful, and you need to repent of that. Right? What, is our, what is our natural reaction? Our natural reaction is to justify. Natural reaction is to, nah, it's to misinterpret. Nah, you, 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 you probably, uh, no, nah, you didn't see it that way. Let me just tell you what really happened. Let me tell you what I meant. Let me tell you the, the reality of the situation. Right, that's our, that's our natural tendency. And if they keep pushing, what do we do? We, we push them away and we try to block them out from, from speaking, from talking, from bringing the truth to bear on this situation. This is what happens to them. They're like, this guy confronts us at every turn. We gotta get rid of him. We gotta get rid of him. The only way they could stop the pressure of truth and, and to silence their conscience was to get rid of the source. Or so they thought. They were saying, it doesn't matter what kind of trial this is, what kind of trial we're going to give this guy, let's just get him out. And by the way, I know we hate Romans and we don't do business with Romans, but if we have to just for this one time, Let's involve them because what's at stake is greater than our relationship with the Romans. Go back to Isaiah 53 and look what he continues to write. And he says, but as for his generation who considered, but as for his generation who considered, the, these three lines should probably be taken and interpreted as just one question. Generation, as for his generation. It refers to Jesus' contemporaries, his peers, those who were with him and, and lived with him. As for his generation, his own people who consider. To consider something is to ponder. It is to reflect on something. It is to deliberate something in your mind to try to solve and resolve a puzzle of some kind. 
Like I'm looking at these scenes, I'm seeing what's going on, but I don't understand it. Did anyone in his generation take all these events and try to reconcile them to understand what is going on? An innocent man is hanging on the tree and he's going to die. It's a paradox. You can't believe what you're seeing. You want to resolve what's in front of you. You want to go home and this thing just continues to hunt you. As for his generation, the author asks, did anyone consider, consider what? That he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Cut off from the land of the living is obviously a reference to death. He died. You know, this word cut off literally means to be hacked, to be hacked to pieces. It, it's used in the account of First uh, Kings chapter 3, remember, where Solomon reigns and two women come and they bring their, you know, a child and they're arguing, no, this is mine. No, this is mine. This is mine. And Solomon's like, bring me a sword. And he takes up the sword and he says, you know what? Cut him up and, and give each one, you know, half. And, and, and the evil mother cries out, nah, no, hack him. Same exact word that he's using. Hack him. Cut him up. Because it's better that none of us get this child. Hack him to pieces. Did anyone consider in his generation that he was hacked? Why? Why? What? Verse 8, for the transgression of my people. What is transgression? Transgression is the manifestation. It is a visible manifestation of our sinful depravity, of our, of our evil hearts. Because of our sinful bent, we transgress, we step over the boundaries, we trespass the law of God continually. So here's the question, who cared to consider, to ponder the death of the servant? Did anyone consider at the time of his death what his execution meant? From the human perspective, Justice was not served. An innocent man was convicted, sentenced to die, and was brutally murdered. This right here, this scene, this, this Good Friday episode was, was supposed to be on everyone's radar. Someone should have been asking question, what is going on? Why is this man who came to save and who came to love his people all of a sudden hanging on the cross? Did anyone in his generation consider these questions? Certainly not many of his people did. Not many of his people did, but who did? The Romans. Can you believe this? The Romans. Pilate considered this. Even for a moment, in Luke 23, 14, he says, this man is innocent. He knew what he was doing, but he was just a puppet, afraid to defend the truth. But he saw it. This man is innocent. Roman centurion in, in Matthew 27, he knew it. He was standing on the cross and just observing everything that's taken place, the earthquake, the darkness, the sign above Jesus Christ. And he's looking at it and, and he testifies and he says, truly, this was the son of God. Why did Christ die? 
the innocent man dies the cruelest death known at that time. This is perplexing. Why? For the transgression of my people. For the transgression of my people. It wasn't for his own sins. It was for our sins. He died instead of his people. He died in their place. The innocent for the guilty. And what about this generation? What about us here tonight? Have you personally considered the death of Christ and its implications for you? Those of us who are saved, I think we're constantly mulling on on the, the cross truth, the crucified Jesus Christ, because this is the bedrock, this is the entrance, this is the foundation of our faith. But what about you? Have you personally considered, have you personally gave it a thought Why? Why? When Jesus died, he suffered as a substitute in the place and on behalf of fallen humanity. Christ's death made it possible for for men and women to be declared righteous, forever righteous before God, based on faith in him. His death, brothers and sisters, his death was not merely a statement, a general statement against evil or a mere expression of love. His death was a payment to satisfy his father. Jesus Christ's death was a payment to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why in John chapter 3, 36, right, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who, what does it mean to believe in the Son? To believe in the Son means to reckon Him as your Savior, to trust Him that what what He says He did for us on the cross is true, and that all of my baggage that, that was given to me through birth and everything that I've accumulated since then because of my depravity was all taken up and nailed to the cross. To believe in Jesus Christ is to acknowledge that he's my savior and I'm no longer liable for my sin. But the one who does not believe, John continues, the one who does not believe, he remains. He says the wrath of God remains on him. What does that mean? That means you're going to pay eternally for your sin. That's what it means. God is angry. Why? Because of sin. How do you get from under this wrath, from under this anger, so that you're no longer, God is no longer angry with you, so that you're not, no longer enemies, but you're, you're friends. You're the beloved. How do you do that? Well, you have to enter through the beloved. You have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ, he died. He was hacked for the transgression of others for my transgression. Check this out. To whom the stroke was due. And unfortunately, I'll be honest with with you here in this room that this stroke is still due to some of you here. Why? Because you continue to reject Christ. You continue to reject that offer of salvation. You continue to reject the only possible way. That's why he says, I am... I'm the door. You want to you get in? Here I am. Get in. 
Matthew 28, Matthew 20, 28 says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was, it, from the very beginning, his mission was clear. Paul recounts the events and he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 25, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, we, we don't have any desire, we don't have any ability to offer to God anything of our own. We are dead in our sins. It must be Jesus. It can only be Jesus. Do you have this substitute tonight? Consider the injustice of the servant trial. Consider the substitutionary nature of the servant's execution. Finally, I want to look at Verse 9 here, the servant's burial. In verse 9, Isaiah offers another line of evidence that this servant was someone special. He was not only submissive, but he was innocent. And that's why. He was innocent. This is, you know, there's one thing to say that, that I have the ability not to lash out when I'm wronged. But, but right here, right here on Friday, uh, it's a completely different level. This, it's the ability to speak truth at all times, to be totally innocent, to be totally righteous. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's why this death is special. How could a death of another produce reconciliation in your relationship with God? Many people have died before. Many people will die still. How could a death of another reconcile you with God? Only when that someone is completely righteous, has never rebelled against God, and could affect our reconciliation in this way. Christ is that someone. Look what he says. His grave was assigned. This was the, the final insult. He was supposed to be dumped. As he's hacked, He's supposed to be taken off the cross and, and dumped as a criminal where other sinners would go. There was no special barrier for him, burial for him. The Romans, they, they would often do this. After they crucified, they come in, they remove the body, and they discard it with the rest. They didn't care where it went. Justice was served, done deal, bring on the next guy. The type of death Christ died by crucifixion, it guaranteed that he was a criminal. At least in, in the eyes of the people. But check this out. The Lord. You know that the Father, the Father who at the beginning of Jesus' ministry opens up heavens, sends down his Holy Spirit on his Son, and proclaims, like a trumpet, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. That father has other plans. Why? Because this son is special. This son is beloved. He's unlike any other sinner. He was buried in a tomb of a rich man, Joseph. You know, this, this burial here is so important in scripture that, that all four gospel writers they recorded this event. 
Some events, even about the cross, are not recorded in all, five, in all four, four Gospels. But this event here, the burial, is so important. And according to Paul, Jesus' death as well as his burial is of first importance because he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Burial is so important. Why? Why was his burial so important? He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Now, this does not mean that rich are innocent. It means that rich were given honor in their death. They were honored in their death. Christ was honored in the sovereignty of God because he was innocent and did not deserve to be discarded. Check this out. Verse 9. His grave was assigned with the wicked, yet he was put in this special place. Why? Here's the reason. Because the reason for such great honor, he had done no violence. He did not have active hostility against people, nor was there any deceit. Deceit is, points to the state of heart, state of heart that's pure, that's righteous before the father. Deceit in his mouth, and mouth just specifies the organ through which one's deceit would become evident. And so if you put those things together, this, this description, it affirms the sinlessness of the servant in thought, deed, and word. Whole person, innocent, beautiful, holy, righteous before the Father. Therefore, Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice without sin, without stain, who voluntarily lays down his own life for ours. And because of that, he gets proper recognition in his burial. He had to undergo death, but honored in his burial. Scott Grant writes, behind the hand of Joseph, who placed Jesus in his tomb, we see the hand of God. The earthly judges may render their verdict and assign him a grave with the wicked, but the heavenly judge, given a hint of the verdict he will render shortly on the third day, gives him an honorable burial. Church, here's the paradox of Good Friday. If it had ended on Friday, we would have probably referred to it as Black Friday and maybe it would just disappear from our memory. Jesus' trial proved his humble submission to the end. His execution proved the substitutionary nature of his death and his burial proved that he is innocent. Tonight, let us be reminded of the gravity of our sin. Let us be pondering the, the depth of God's love for us. Let us consider our Savior's commitment to the end. And let us remember that this is the foundation of our faith. Charles Wesley once wrote a hymn, And Can It Be, which contains the second line or this line in second stanza. It says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. And talk about the paradox in life. Talk about mysteries. This is the mystery of them all. The immortal dying. This is it. The eternal God 
who is himself the author of life, experiences the worst of deaths for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Lord, we are so thankful that we no longer bear the wrath, especially seeing what Jesus had to undergo. We are thankful that we bear his righteousness. Oh, let us be thankful. Let us be joyful. I I pray for, for us Christians in this room just to be rejuvenated in our faith and our joy for Jesus Christ, but also for those who who may be just sitting there and and still wondering if there's another way, still wondering how can I dodge this bullet. Lord, I pray that this message would, would slay them, would bring them to the foot of the cross where they can be healed or save some among us. I pray that you would refresh the Christians among us who, who may be just lagging behind, not worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Strengthen our faith tonight and this weekend especially. We pray and ask in Christ's name, amen.